Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Hello, welcome to Hollywood Crime Scene. This is Rachel Fisher. Hi, this is Desi Jedekin. Let's thank our Patreon subscribers from this past week. They went over to patreon.com slash Hollywood Crime Scene. This week we have Cecilia, Jeff, Debbie, Amy, Kinson, Emelena, Jens, Tammy, Katrin, Karen, Jessica, Amanda, and Victoria. Thank you, guys. Thank you all so much. So this week we're going to talk about one of my all-time favorite horror movies, Candyman. This will be a hardcore movie versus reality because I'm really going to get into a lot of the different iterations of Candyman as well as the real-life murder that inspired elements of the 1992 Candyman. A lot of sources here. Um, Both the 1992 and 2021 versions of the movie I watched. I read the Clive Barker story, The Forbidden, which is where we originally hear about Candyman, two award-winning articles by Steve Boguera for the Chicago Reader, They Came In Through the Bathroom Mirror and Cause of Death, a few bloody disgusting articles by Harrison Abbott about Candyman. I read uh, an article on urban legends by Joe Stubbersfield in The Conversation and one on the 2021 movie In Time by Andrew Chow. Wow. (laughs) No, that's good. It's a lot of There was a lot of different things. Yeah. There's like a lot of elements to this show. Okay. So we're going to start off with The Forbidden. The 1992 film was adapted from a 1985 short story written by British author Clive Barker. The story is called The Forbidden, and it's in Barker's collection, Books of Blood. I think it's called In the Flesh in America. So you can find it there if you are interested. Like the movie, um, the protagonist of The Forbidden is a grad student named Helen, and she's exploring a local impoverished neighborhood as the basis for her upcoming thesis. When we first meet her, she's basically doing her research for this paper, wandering the desolate streets of Liverpool, in particular an area called Spectre Street. So the original story takes place in England. Yes, Yes. Not Chicago. No. So this area is heavily vandalized with lots of graffiti. There's busted street lamps, burned out vehicles, the whole deal. Um, But it is the graffiti that really captivates her. Beyond just regular tagging, there's a lot of obscene words, sexually boastful uh, phrases, and all sorts of other over-the-top images that she's hoping will make a big impact in her study, which is on the semiotics of urban despair. Like in the movie, the residents of this neighborhood view her very skeptically, but one resident, Anne-Marie, befriends her and gives her a more in-depth look into the neighborhood, including one abandoned flat in particular that is very vandalized and sort of 
funky. It has um, a urine-soaked rug. The windows are all boarded up and the furniture has been torn apart seemingly by like some kind of animal. It's decorated wall-to-wall in graffiti, including a horrific face that's framing a door so that the door opening resembles an open mouth. Now, that's in the it, that's in the 1992 uh, movie as well. She's on she's sort of mesmerized by this unsettling image. Uh, the the picture is a man with yellow skin, bloodshot eyes, wiry hair, patchwork clothes, and sharpened teeth. So it's very specific, and the because it's so specific, it makes it seem very real, and it's haunting towards her, to her. Now, this is the mythic Candyman, who is a figure that the residents of Specter Street fear. He has his sort of catchphrase that's written in graffiti is sweets to the sweet. Yeah. Um, and that is something she sees all over. He is called Candyman because when he arrives to kill, he has a sweet aroma. He has a hook for a hand and bees have nested in his rib cage. Like the Candyman from the 1992 movie, he also has a very hypnotic uh, quality. So like most urban legends, when Helen interviews people, she gets different versions of events. Um, The one thing that remains sort of consistent is the level of violence is extremely gruesome. The murder um, weapon, as I mentioned earlier, is the hook. He also sometimes uses a razor blade and victims are savaged beyond recognition. Um, Men have been slashed to ribbons. Someone had their eyes uh, gouged out and one was castrated in public toilets. Now, the forbidden is... Like the Candyman doesn't even show up till almost the end of the book, and it's really about the hysteria surrounding him, and it's taking this idea of urban legends, how they change over time, and how they become this part of you know part of the fabric of society and how it affects people. Helen has snobby university pals in the Forbidden who basically think these people are all lying because of the inconsistencies. While Helen believes that whenever the story is told, it is embellished with each person's own repressed urges and they add a piece of themselves to this story when they tell it. And these stories become kind of like an acceptable way to confess our own dark thoughts and desire, which is really what I find interesting about urban legends Yeah, because it's like, we all have them, sometimes similar stories, but there's slight variations depending on where you grew up. Or mm-hmm. And it all has this element of like my friend's cousin's friend. Like <laughs> there's some kind of removal, but you get to add these juicy details. It's slightly personal sometimes. Yes. So another element in The Forbidden that is retained in the film is, is sort of like... Um, about class. Yes. Now, Candyman, the movie adds race to that, but this... In the, in the story, it is a very poor metropolitan district, and it's largely neglected by the government and police, which definitely plays into Candyman in a bigger way. Now, Helen, of course, sees herself as like, I have more empathy for these residents than all my other white intellectual friends, right? She sees them, but she still sees them as fearful when she's experiencing, uh, you know, exploring this neighborhood she is trying to prove that she's not scared, but she is scared. So she's just as bad, but she's definitely trying to present herself as being different. Now she comes into this with an academic 
goal at first. She obviously goes down this rabbit hole with the Candyman, becoming convinced that it's more than an urban legend. Like in the movie, she inevitably gets way more than she bargains for. It's a good story. It's a great story. And I would say that the 1992 film is one of the greatest horror movies of all time. I like it. It's it's st- The thing about Candyman is it stands the test of time. It really does. It's a timeless story. It's just as relevant today as it was when it was made almost 30 years ago. Yeah. Tony Todd is a fucking legend. It's such a great film. I was surprised. I hadn't seen it in a very long time, and I was surprised how well it held up. It it's super. Up. It's super tight. It's yeah. only an hour thirty. Yeah, and it's good. And like it's scary. I like. The, I like the pace. Like it does. You take a while to get to him as well in the movie. I mean, you know, considering uh, it definitely has more of a slasher vibe than the story. Like there's definitely more uh, killings that we kind of witness. But yeah, so. When writer-director Bernard Rose takes on the film uh, adaptation of the story, he changes the title to Candyman. He also switches up the main thing. um, The main thing he switches is that it's, like you said, taken out of Liverpool, and it's moved to an American setting, the infamous Cabrini-Green public housing buildings in Chicago. Uh, I mentioned earlier he gets a little bit more of a slasher vibe. We also get more of a backstory on the character of the Candyman, who is now a black man who was a victim of a lynch mob in the 1800s. We'll get into that a little bit more later. Another element added by Rose is a truly terrifying inspiration from a real-life crime that took place in another one of Chicago's infamous housing projects, ABLA Homes, and this was the murder of Ruthie Mae McCoy. So Ruthie Mae McCoy was born in Arkansas in 1935, one of eight children, and the family moved to Chicago's South Side um, when she was a child in order to seek out better opportunities. Unfortunately, things did not get much better in the big city, and the family really struggled to get by most of her childhood. When she enters her early 20s, she begins to show signs of mental illness, Um, This is the mid-50s, so needless to say, these things were not really handled or treated at all. Uh, She did things like talk to herself. She had extreme outbursts of anger. And although she was undiagnosed with anything, it was definitely something her relatives all noticed. Now, her family was very religious, and they believed Ruthie might have been taken over by the devil because she had fallen out with God. They prayed for the devil to be cast out of Ruthie, but then claimed it wasn't working because she uh, had to want help to make it work, and she didn't want help. Also, that's not how (laughs) we cure mental illness or treat mental illness. So when she's 27, she gives birth to her only child, Vernita. Vernita's father uh, takes off, and Ruthie at that point pretty much becomes like the president of the man-hating club. (laughs) She does not trust men as far as she can throw them for the rest of her life. Now, because Ruthie was in and out of institutions during her mental health struggles, Vernita would often stay with relatives. Fortunately, during one of those days, Ruthie Mae does finally get on some medications that help her. But as many people do, she goes off and on in them. When she's feeling better, she doesn't think she needs them. And Vernita speaks of how noticeable it was when her mom was off her meds. She would see her mother, who was quite an imposing figure at 5'11 and over 200 pounds, cursing random people on the street, causing fights with people. So she really was worried about her mom's safety, even though she was like an imposing figure 
you know, it doesn't mean that someone couldn't take her down if she fucked with the wrong person. Um, she mostly worked service jobs. Uh, she had like housekeeping jobs and stuff like that, but only managed to hold them for very short periods of time and relied on public assistance to get by. In 19... 19- 83, her basement apartment floods and she applies for Chicago public housing, requesting a location on the south side so she could be near relatives. She specifically asked not to be placed in a high rise, but that's what she was offered, an 11th floor unit in the Abbott Homes section of ABL Homes. In May of 1983, she settles into apartment 1109. Now, just a note about Chicago's public housing at the time, at a Um, During this period, about 3,600 people live in the Abbott homes when Ruthie moves there. Most are in the high rises, while about 500 live in the more desirable two-story row houses that are considered more safe. While Cabrini Green is the more well-known housing project and often cited as being a crime-ridden location, ABLA is actually more has more reported crimes at the time than Cabrini Green and is double the incident rate of violent crime than like as more than the whole city as a whole. So mm-hmm. the, there's like double crime rate there. Um, the Abbott high rises were particularly, uh, particularly dangerous in the ABLA. It is speculated that Cabrini Green got more attention because of its proximity to the Gold Coast and downtown area where the media was headquartered mostly. So it was a fast drive over there to report whatever was happening. Nobody went to ABLA. Not what, um, sorry, what makes Abbott Homes so ripe to be taken over by criminal elements as well is its layout. There's a lot of studies obviously done on public housing. There's a 1972 study by renowned housing expert Oscar Newman that found crime rates increased with the height of the buildings, the size of the projects, and the distance of the buildings from the streets. So these super blocks of high rises like Abbott Homes were considered to be the worst possible combination for um, public housing. He wrote in his book, Defensible Space Crime Prevention Through Urban Design, that high-rises promote anonymous living, making it less likely that residents will look out for their neighbors, um, and the lack of streets isolates them even further, making uh, routine security surveillance and stuff like that very difficult. Um, Other books about this particular um, residency uh, said that the Abbott Helms gave off a very forbidding vibe and the human scale there seemed completely lost. Um, So Abbott Helms was the precursor to a lot of towering public housing developments built in Chicago in the late 50s and 60s. And a lot of these happened because of NIMBYs. Basically, they had wanted to build smaller projects in various neighbors throughout the city. The city council blocked this because the white people who lived there did not want public housing in their neighborhood. Right. Uh, Some things never change. Another scary aspect of Abbott Homes was the dark stairwells, which were completely enclosed. Now, some other buildings would have their staircases kind of on the side of the building that had these screened enclosures that light would come through. These were completely encased in cement, so no light got into them. If a light bulb was out, these staircases would be pitch black even during the day sometimes. Lights were always out. They were just, there was no one replacing bulbs like there's no service here. Like these people are not getting uh, things fixed at all. So this made it very conducive to things like dealing drugs because they had all these dark spaces. There was tons of um, vacant apartments as well. And people would basically just set up drug dens to sell and take drugs there. Now, 
These empty apartments were also often pillaged and squatted in and stuff like that. Um, Certain apartments they found out were connected through their medicine cabinets, which were easily removed, allowing people to sneak into the connecting apartment and take whatever they wanted, basically. Now, according to the residents of Abbott Homes, the medicine cabinet break-ins began sometime in 1986. Like once these, once people found out about this, it was kind of like, it was like easy street. They're like, yeah, like, cause you could just, it was, it was used not only to break in, but it was like an escape route if yeah. the cops came and busted you. So everyone was using these medicine cabinet like routes. It was a trap door. Basically. Yeah. Uh, so basically on each floor, there were four of, of 10 apartments that were vulnerable to this. They were the pairs at the end of each of the floor's two main corridors. The apartments um, had back-to-back medicine cabinets, basically. So if you lived in one of these uh, cabinets, you were connected by this empty kind of pipe where the pipes were. It was like enough space that you could climb through uh, and travel. You could even go up and down if you climbed the pipes, pipes, if you can do that. Um, So a lot of the residents were like, that's really scary because it's like locking my door isn't enough if I'm in one of these apartments. Now, one woman who didn't give her name spoke about watching TV with a friend one February evening and her friend sees a figure dart out of her bathroom and race out the front door. They go to the bathroom and see another intruder climbing up the pipes into their um, bathroom and you know they finally call the, the security uh, to get him removed and there was two more coming up the pipes from the par- apartment below. <laughs> That's really scary. Yeah, that is. Uh, so people, this woman said she that after that night, she tied a rope to the bathroom door at bedtime and pulled the door shut and tied the other end to her kid's bunk bed so they couldn't open the door. She said her she would make her kids use a pail of water as a nighttime toilet. That's how much they wanted to block off this um, bathroom. And other residents would push furniture in front of their bathroom doors before going to bed wow. if they lived in one of these apartments. So there's no help solving this problem. And like numerous other things, the residents just have to deal with it on their own. Her first two years in Abbott Homes, Ruthie May shared her two-bedroom apartment with Vernita, Vernita's two young children, and Vernita's boyfriend, Louis, who Ruthie did not like because he was a man. In 85, largely because of the tension between Louis and Ruthie May, they leave the house, I mean the apartment, and Ruthie is on her own. Now, this sunk her into a deep depression. Uh, It made her even more crotchety, according to her neighbors. And she would especially go after kids for blasting loud music, and that would really escalate things. They would begin to threaten her and mock her. Police uh, intervened in these squabbles several times. She was described as being argumentative more than violent, but that's what she kind of did. She was angry. She had a lot of anger. Her paranoia increased as well. She lived in constant fear of being mugged or burglarized. She was constantly having her locks changed. Um, She would check neighbor's doors even to see if neighbor's doors were locked, even setting off car alarms, checking if the doors were locked. Like That was the level of her paranoia. Her loneliness escalated her mental illness in other ways. She stopped eating. Her weight plummeted. Neighbors reported more strange behavior to her daughter, Vernita. She would do things like make snow angels in the freezing cold weather uh, outside. And then in the summer when it was sweltering, she would wear winter coats and like heavy uh, clothing. On August 10th, 1986, Ruthie May 
brings her grandchild to the ER saying that he had fallen down the stairs while she was babysitting him. She was acting off, so they began to suspect that something had happened with with her and the child. This is never proven to be true, by the way, but just the idea of the accusation uh, set her off. She like lost it. So much to the point that they had to put her in leather restraints and Vernita actually came to the hospital and signed papers to commit her mother. Uh, So she gets sent to the Illinois State Psychiatric Institute. There she is finally diagnosed with residual type schizophrenia. Uh, That's basically a version of schizophrenia where you have a lot of um, the behaviors we think of um, without some of the more... uh, you know, prominent ones that are very severe. So it's kind of like, I don't want to say it's light schizophrenia, but it's not as extreme as what we think of typically. It's stuff like talking to yourself, having, um, being paranoid in a mild sort of way. She gets discharged on September 18th and she starts having follow-up care at Mount Sinai Psychiatric Center. This place primarily treats residents of ABLA, not just for mental illness, but literally for the stress of living in these housing projects. Uh, They offer things like group therapy. They also offer GED classes, art classes. They give people meals uh, when needed. So it's really like a community center and people kind of go there to escape where they live and find other people of common interest. Now, this man, Dr. Siegel, runs the nonprofit. He says one way of surviving there is to not be too friendly, to stay to yourself. You don't want people to know your business because that can cause you trouble. So here they were allowed to have those human relationships and not fear that it would affect them in a negative way. She really uh, came to her own going to this center. Um, She definitely was not, um, her illness was treatable, whatever she had. So that they, they got her on the right medications and she really started thriving there. She um, continued it initially was frightened and distrustful of other people there, but eventually she kind of was like, okay, I can have lunch with these people. I can hang out with these people. These are, these are like me. They're here to kind of get away from it all, the stresses of life. Um, most of her stresses were bureaucracy related. She got tons of mail from the government agencies where she was getting welfare and other subsidies. We all know those papers are fucking nightmares. Yes. They make so it very difficult. For it's very people. difficult, even under the best of circumstances. This caused her a lot of stress, and they were able to help her with this stuff there. So that really helped her. She began participating in activities, started getting her, um, taking classes to get her GED. In just a few months, she went from a seventh grade reading level to a ninth grade reading level. Um, she still was opinionated and argumentative, but she really learned how to kind of do it in a right way. She would <laughs> school young women in the groups about going off with fuck boys. Like that was her big thing because she was just like, nope. So yeah, I mean, she was warm and considerate while she was there. People in the neighborhood started noticing her change as well. Um, She gained weight back. She wasn't doing a lot of the odd behaviors and she seemed enthusiastic about her life. Whereas before it was always depressing topics about how much she missed her daughter and her grandbabies. Now she was talking about the future. She wanted to be a nurse. She talked about getting her GED and getting her life together and just getting on track. So it was a very positive experience for her there. One thing that hadn't changed, she hated living in Abbott homes. Uh, She she told the doctor and other clients at the center that people were coming into her house, taking her money, and she was scared living there uh, by herself. 
She asked CHS officials, I'm sorry, CHA officials for a transfer to a row house rather than the high rise, but her request was never granted and she couldn't afford to leave. Her CHA apartment cost her just $46 a month and she basically got $154 a month in uh, uh, welfare, so she couldn't really pay for anything else. She was going to start receiving SSI in February of 1987, and that was sort of her way of moving out when she got this um, starting up. Now, because uh, SSI insurance um, SSI is paid retroactive to the date of application, she applies in September, and her first check comes in February. It's a big check because she's getting all those past months. So she's getting a check for um, almost $2,000. Now, this was what she was going to use to get out of public housing. But she bought a few things as well. She got a winter coat. She got some household items. But people started noticing that she had some money. Detectives think that killers invaded her apartment because they knew she had this uh, sum of cash she got from Social Security. The money she planned to use to get out of Abbott Homes is likely what would get her killed instead. At a quarter to nine on April 22nd, 1987, Chicago police get a 911 call from Ruthie May. She says, I'm a resident at 1440 West 13th Street and some people next door are totally tearing this down, you know? She was frantic. What are you doing, ma'am? Asked the dispatcher. She says, they want to break, she, the dispatcher says they want to break in. She's like, yeah, they throwed the cabinet down. From where? McCoy, I'm in the projects. I'm on the other side. You can, you can reach in my bathroom. They want to come through the bathroom. And the dispatcher asked her again for her address. Uh, she asked for her name. She says, Ruth McCoy. Uh, and she says, all right, I'll send you the police. Now, the dispatcher wasn't certain what McCoy was trying to report. What did she mean by throw the cabinet down that they want to come through the bathroom? She calls, uh, she calls the phone call in and sends a beat car on the way. Um, she basically reports that it's a disturbance with a neighbor. He didn't report the call as a break-in attempt, um, and that might explain why police didn't really arrive right away. They come at 9.02 um, when another 911 call comes concerning apartment 1109. This is from a neighbor um, who was walking through the hallway and heard gunshots from the apartment at 9.04. Another neighbor calls to report gunshots and hollering from apartment 1109. So now two more police cars head to the scene. Four officers arrive at her door around 10 minutes after 9. They pound on the door announcing they're present and there's no answer. They ask a dispatcher to call her back on her phone. Uh, They say, we think somebody may be in there holding somebody. They they hear the phone ringing and ringing inside the apartment, but nothing is uh, happening. Two more officers come downstairs and they drive to the um, management office of the projects to get the key to 1109, but the key doesn't fit McCoy's lock. The officer is then thinking, like, what should we do? Should we break into the apartment? They talk to the neighbors. Neighbors on the floor said that they didn't hear anything, but that's also kind of typical. A lot of people don't want to get involved or they say they didn't hear anything because they're afraid of repercussions to themselves. Um, So they basically contact the management office again, but a janitor there says that he has no other key for 1109. At a 9.48, the police leave her building and um, the Abbott Home Project. 
The following evening, they get a call from another neighbor, Deborah Lasley. She says McCoy normally stops by her apartment on the way out of the building every morning and upon her return in the afternoon, but she hadn't stopped by all day and this got her very worried. I can't believe they just left. Yes. That is crazy to (laughs) me. I'm sorry. I'm still (laughs) marinating on that, that this woman called the police for help and was like, please, someone's breaking, someone help me. And then- for once, they don't break in. Right. <laughs> like, seriously. Right. The ones, what if they ever stopped themselves before? That's what's... Oh, I'm so angry. Okay, yeah. continue. So a half dozen police officers and um, Chicago Housing Authority security guards arrive on the scene. They knock and call for her, and those calls go unanswered. Most of the police officers think that they should break down the door, but the security guards discourage the police from breaking down the door. One of them raises the possibility that she could sue if the police break in. Uh, so the security guards basically tell the police to kind of not do it. And the police are like, okay. And oh. they leave. <laughs> I'm sorry. It's not, it's not funny. It's absurd. No, it's absurd. It's infuriating. So the next day, this neighbor, Lasley, she calls the project office and is still concerned. At about 1 p.m., a project official finally arrives at her door with a carpenter. They drill through the lock, and there they find uh, Ruthie May in the bedroom, lying on her side in a pool of blood, a hand over her chest, one shoe on and one shoe off. She had been shot four times. The medical examiner said that the fatal bullet had passed through her right upper arm into her chest, which severed her pulmonary vein. Uh, So the cause of death was internal bleeding. She did not die immediately, but she probably died very fast because that pulmonary vein uh, is, that's just not survivable. Um, Even if they had gotten there immediately, she probably would have died anyway, but uh, still let's try. Like, yeah, let's take her and give her a fighting chance. Yeah. Now this murder barely makes a blip as far as coverage goes. She is one of three ABLA residents that are murdered that week. The only paper that covers her murder initially is a Black-owned paper called Defender. In that paper, they interview uh, police, and police say that they think she knew her attackers because there was no indication they had forced their way in. A story is eventually published in the um, published in the Chicago Tribune, and questions start being asked at this point. What kind of place is it where people can get killed coming through the medicine cabinet? Because they were like, there's no breakout, and the residents are like, uh, we've been telling you about these break-ins through the medicine cabinet for a fucking year and a half now. There's an entire facility where residents go because they're so traumatized yes. by their living conditions. Yes, and then also police... Um, receiving those 911 calls and neglecting to enter her apartment the first night obviously becomes a point of contention. Uh, this obviously comes as no surprise to the residents, either one of these things. According to them, they feel like they are seen as animals and no one cares if they live or die. And they point to a difference in coverage between two recent 911 fails as evidence. Now, in May of the previous year, um, a white woman named Nancy Clay dies in a high-rise blaze and indications that the 911 system failed her prompt weeks of media coverage, a city council investigation, a council hearing featuring testimony by the fire commissioner, broadcast live on public radio, and several proposed ordinances come out of that. The performance of the police in the McCoy case doesn't even merit a departmental investigation. Just like a wild difference of like treatment in these cases. Yeah. 
So the scene in her apartment after the crime scene wraps is, is really sad. And it's a sad reminder of how far she had come and her plans for the future. Amongst uh, the money asked from fundamentalist preachers, she is one of those people who sent money to those uh, Jim and Tammy Faye types. Uh, she also has obviously a lot of government letters, um, various government agencies, but there's also her notebooks and worksheets that she was using to study for her GED. The medicine cabinet is completely gone. There's just a hole in the wall with the bare pipes, you know, just this creepy reminder that the killers wriggled around these pipes into her apartment. This medicine cabinet is never found. Taped around the hole in the wall were, were clippings Ruthie May had taken from various religious magazines saying things like, God will be your dentist. And from the article, um, one of the articles by Steve, uh, it quote, on the other side of the opening was a story from the power of the Holy Ghost. Thyroid condition vanishes, disclosing how the bulges in a woman's neck disappeared during Holy Week. The woman had discovered that the lumps were gone, the story said, when her husband, who had taken the bathroom mirror down to wallpaper, put it back up. A spooky clip to see, knowing what happened to McCoy. Was she waiting for some similar redemption to come through her bathroom mirror? Just like a creepy story to be right there. Yeah. A church service was held for Ruthie on the South Side on April 30th. A pamphlet handed out at the service had some heartbreaking words prominently displayed. It said, life was hard for Ruthie May. Isn't that sad? That's really sad. So within two weeks, um, two suspects are arrested. Edward Turner, who was 19, and 25-year-old John Hondras. Both were charged with murder, home invasion, armed robbery, armed violence, and residential burglary. The home invasion charge um, indicated that the state believed the killers knew she was home when they broke in, and they believed that was because they wanted her there so she could tell them where she had that money stashed. She didn't flee when she heard the noises in the bathroom, and they speculate that she probably figured if they were coming in the bathroom, they were also waiting outside the front door. So she sat there not knowing which way to go. She got on the telephone. The only security she had was to try to use the telephone to get the police to come to her. Um, apartment 1108, which is where the killers came from, had been leased and rented, uh, had been paid throughout the year. The tenants um, were not living there, though. So it was a place that addicts would frequently uh, hang out, and, and they, they didn't find any drug paraphernalia there, though. But the people had two days to remove any stuff, because that's how long it took for them to find out she was even dead. So they could have been going into her apartment, or even been in the apartment when the police came, right. and just taken all evidence, um, taken the bathroom mirror, like whatever the fuck they wanted to. Um, the relatives who were the residents of this apartment were related to Hondras. Now, the phone was actually stolen from her apartment, and detectives don't know if they ever got money, but there were um, some other things that they knew were stolen and recovered from one of the defendant's friends, including a television and a rocking chair. The fact that the phone was taken is really wild because the dispatcher was calling her number the night the police heard it outside the door. So it was there that night. And at some point they went back in and stole the phone for some reason. So she couldn't call for help again, I guess, right. even though she probably died very quickly, just like creepy that they're still going in her apartment like yeah. that. Um, so people obviously are very critical of the cops not entering the apartment that night. Um, but clop, cops are basically claiming, um, that they were all of a sudden very worried about illegally entering oh, a, a residency. Oh, oh, I'm sure. 
So one of the lead detectives, Detective Lucer, said, 10 years ago, we would have knocked the door down, never even thought about it. But today, it's entirely different. You're not supposed to do this. You're not supposed to do that. We know they do it. So, well, Oh, now they're concerned yeah. about following police yeah. protocols. They also claimed that 911 calls from housing projects were more likely to be pranks. So that's why they didn't take it as seriously. That's also untrue. Uh, there is a chair of the 911 uh, committee for public safety. This is a national organization. He says that he knows of no study indicating that calls from housing projects or poor neighborhoods are more likely to be pranks. There are, on the other hand, several studies indicating that police officers are unduly distrustful of reports of crime from poor and black neighborhoods. So it's a police thing. It is not a true thing. No. It's them who who are acting this way. Now, Housing Project residents, they have their own opinions about this, and it pretty much lines up with what we were just saying. Uh one resident said, it's poor people in here. They're not concerned with poor people. Maybe they don't care or maybe they're afraid too. Another area where blame is often shifted was about the key not working for her apartment. Uh, so they put the police basically put the blame on the Chicago Housing Authority for not coming up with a key to her apartment. Um, the security guards who were opposing it were like, oh, we can use a key and the key didn't work. A CHA spokesperson said McCoy had had apparently changed the lock on her own against CHA rules and never gave the project office a key. So are they like... They're basically blaming her for, for not her giving own. them a key. Uh, there's like more information about this key thing because apparently sh- she had to change it because they weren't changing it. And, right. and residents of these buildings often had to change their own locks because they would never get service otherwise. So right. they had to do it on their own. So it's like a systemic failure more, even if she didn't give them the key, it's like, yeah, you could have done it for her. Right. Like, it's not her fault. It's just a shit show. One of the janitors uh, who did work in these buildings at this time, he says, they call this the ABLA development. It's the ABLA settlement. It's a place to keep people out of the mainstream. The system really doesn't intend for these people to go anywhere. It's put, the, it's put them there and keep them there. Dr. Siegel from the center where Ruthie uh, went daily remembered her last words to him before she went to her apartment on the day she would be killed. She said to him, I need help now getting an apartment elsewhere. I got to get out of there. I'm not going to go into the whole trial, but basically it's an absolute shit show. They have this star witness who is based, they base their whole case on this one witness who completely blows it and changes his story mid trial and it's like, he's like the class, it's like what we think of, like, that's not a reliable witness. He is like the epitome of that. And it blows the whole case. Both suspects are found not guilty, basically due to lack of evidence. They don't have any physical evidence. They only had this eyewitness, even though everyone kind of thinks these guys basically did it. And that's, we're going to end the story of Ruthie May here. Uh, so just a tragic story all around. And we'll get into more after the break. 
I can't wait to shop for all of my summer fashion and beauty needs, and we'll definitely be checking out Ulta and Adidas. Rakuten really is the best way to shop. You can really save by stacking cash back on top of other deals. And during Big Give Week, the cash back is bigger than ever. It's the time to shop for everything you need for spring and summer, like clothing, outdoor gear, and travel. Membership is free, and it's all happening May 6th to May 13th. Join today for free and get an extra 10% cash back boost on top of Big Give Week cashback rates. Go to Rakuten.com or download the Rakuten app today. That's R-A-K-U-T-E-N. Shoppers get it. Rakuten is the shopping platform to save while shopping. I'm the queen of starting a free trial offer and forgetting to cancel it, oftentimes being charged for months for something I'm not even using. If I asked you how many subscriptions you have, would you be able to list all of them and how much you're paying? If you would have asked me this question before I started using Rocket Money, I would have said yes, but let me tell you, I would have been so wrong. I can't believe how many I had and all the money I was wasting. With Rocket Money, I can see all of my subscriptions in one place, and if I see something I don't want, I can cancel it with a tap. I never have to get on the phone with customer service. They'll even try to get you a refund for the last couple of months of wasted money and negotiate to lower your bills for you by up to 20%. All you have to do is take a picture of your bill, and Rocket Money takes care of the rest. Rocket Money is a personal finance app that finds and cancels your unwanted subscriptions, monitors your spending, and helps lower your bills. Rocket Money has over 5 million users and has helped save its members an average of $720 a year with over 500 million in canceled subscriptions. It's definitely saved me money, and now I can use that money to waste on things I do want. So stop wasting money on things you don't use. Cancel your unwanted subscriptions by going to rocketmoney.com slash Hollywood Crime Scene. That's rocketmoney.com slash Hollywood Crime Scene. And we're back. Okay. So... The writer, the reporter, Steve Boguera, writes these articles. And as I mentioned earlier, they're award-winning, very in-depth articles. They're online. You should read them if you want to learn more about uh, the subject matter. Um, He, at some point, gets a call from John Malkovich. He is in town for a Steppenwolf production when the story, uh, the Bathroom Mirror story is initially published. He reads it and he's like, this is a movie. So he calls this reporter to get together and discuss it. So Malkovich is obviously struck by this setting, the Abbott homes and how fucked up things are there for residents of the place. He wants to um, present this to an audience about what, what it's like to live in these high rise projects. He's interested in directing or possibly helping produce this film. And this is all great with the reporter, but Malkovich wants to have the lead character be a white reporter investigating a medicine cabinet killing. And this is where this guy, Steve, objects. He's like, I'm really uncomfortable that a movie about the plight of these poor black people will focus on this white sort of like hero reporter. Right. And Malkovich tries to explain Hollywood to him and how that's needed to get it, et cetera. I mean... Yeah, I mean, that attitude is still around today. Of course. And it's probably even way worse back then. But Malkovich gets it, and he's like, you know, I'll still pitch it around and see what we get. Yeah. Um, So he pitches the idea to some uh, producers. He doesn't hear back from Malkovich or anyone else, so this guy assumes no one has been interested. 
1992, people call him when uh, Candyman is released and they're like, uh, <laughs> there is like this bathroom mirror element in Candyman. Uh, the character's last name, um, played by Vanessa Williams, is McCoy. Yeah. She lives in this apartment with her young son in the movie. So there's elements that are very similar to this guy's story. Now, he doesn't, he's not accusing Malkovich of doing anything. He kind of speculates that Malkovich heard about, because he's from Chicago, and maybe they talked to him about this Candyman movie, and he's like, oh, you should read this story. And um, yeah. It's Vanessa A. Williams, right? Yeah, but she's still credited as Vanessa Williams. Right, but then she started she's going... On Melrose Place. She, she was on the first season of Melrose Place. That's right. But then she started going... By then, she started going by Vanessa A. Williams. Right, because Vanessa Williams was already America, famous. And she has a middle initial too, right? Vanessa Al Williams? I don't know. I, she, I think they both do. Uh, I'm not sure though. But yeah, it's a different Vanessa Williams... She is uh, from Melrose Place. She's been a bunch of stuff. And yeah. she's in the new Candyman, too, by the way. Oh, my God, she is? Yes. Uh, I'll get into that. Now, so, yeah, this guy's kind of like, he wrote an article about the movie being released and what, this story with John Malkovich. And uh, he doesn't go much into it. He's not bitter or anything. It was just kind of like, oh, wow, that's interesting. Yeah. <laughs> so... Uh, he feels like what happened is it kind of, um, a real story from where, I mean, the movie is Cabrini Green, but it's similar enough. It kind of gave this sort of gravitas or an air of truth to what is kind of a supernatural E story, right? Uh, not really, um, but you know what I'm saying? Like a fantasy or something, whatever. So I mentioned earlier, um, the movie gives us more of a backstory for the Candyman. It also uses elements of other urban legends to, I think, make it seem more familiar and like a real urban legend, even though it's basically created for the movie. The frame of the story in the movie is basically now more urban legend oriented. Helen's dissertation is on urban legends. She hears about Candyman and she goes into Cabrini Green to find out um, what Candyman is by talking to the residents because um, this this Candyman has really taken a hold of the imagination of these residents. So she's trying to um, come to you know, she feels like they're trying to just use that to come to terms with the horror of their life living there. Um, so there's a few main urban legends, very famous urban legends that are sort of attached to Candyman. The first one is obviously taken from Bloody Mary. The yeah. way you summon Candyman is by repeating his name five times while looking into a mirror. Uh, Good that thing is, there's no mirrors in here because we've said his name several <laughs> times. Do tonight. you have to do it with intent? While looking in, I think you have to say it. You have to say it in a row while looking in. Look, you know I'm very superstitious. Well, have you ever done Bloody Mary uh, all the time when I was a kid? You did it completely. Ah, uh, yeah, <laughs> I did. You okay. miss superstitious? I okay. I've never even done it. I'm too scared. I am a very superstitious person, but I was a lot more fearless as a child. Okay. I I think I feel like I may have done it, but it does kind of creep me out. It's so, so creepy. I'm kind of like, well, why why do I even risk it? Also, <laughs> also the the time. I mean, I did it at like sleepovers and stuff, but I remember a time, a few times doing it. Like I would pull different uh, girlfriends into the bathroom during recess and be like, "Let's play Bloody Mary," and we'd sh- we'd lock the door. Ugh. See, I don't even like being in a bathroom with the lights out. 
it's weird. It's scary. Well, have you ever looked in the mirror while Yes. No, while you're on mushrooms. Oh, no. I thought you were saying while the lights are out. Oh, it's scary. Well, no, that's I scary, ha- too. Uh, I mean, maybe on acid, yeah. You never want to do that. No. But I feel like there's like a very... I feel like looking into a mirror and staring at yourself for that long, even if you're not on hallucinogens, is just like not a good idea. It's creepy. It's very creepy. So yeah, I mean, we all kind of have a vague idea about Bloody Mary. Basically, the thing is, you say it, she'll come and slash scratch your face up. She'll scratch your face. Yeah, that's that's the one I heard. Uh, her origin story is often um, she's a beautiful woman who had her face face slashed, or she is a mother of a murdered baby. Like there's several. What what was the one you heard? Well, isn't it based on Mary Queen of Scots? I mean, maybe these, I'm just taking this from uh, Snopes. Like I looked up the urban legends there. So I guess there's a bunch of versions of this story. It's been around forever. Yeah. Uh, So yeah. Now the hook hand, that's also a very famous urban legend. Um, The famous story is that the couple is on like a lover's lane. They hear about a serial killer having escaped a nearby institution. He has a hook for a hand. They decide to leave. And when they pull over later, they see a hook hanging from the door handle. So they have just escaped his hooky clutches. Did you hear that urban legend? Of course. Yeah. Uh, I thought that, see the one, there's a few versions of it. Well, the one that I heard was that the hook was scraping the top of the car. Yes. That's another one that the hook is scraping. I have goosebumps. The the hook scraping, but I, I do remember being like, and the hook was on the handle. That that was also very scary because it's like they were so close. I'm getting scared right now, Desi. <laughs> I'm starting to rethink my decor choices for this studio. <laughs> it, for those of you who don't know, I have an entire wall in our studio that's really creepy clown art. I'm not comfortable right now. Well, tell well, me some more. Uh, so another origin story for the hook, though, that's really funny is. In 1960, it was someone wrote in a letter to Dear Abby, and in the letter she said, "If you are interested in teen- teenagers, you will print this story. I don't know if it's true or not, but it doesn't matter because it serves a purpose." A fellow in his state pulled into a lover's lane to listen to the radio and do a little necking. The music was interrupted by an announcer saying an escaped convict had served time for rape and robbery. He was described as having a hook instead of a hand. The couple became frightened and drove away. The boy took the girl home. He went around to open the car door for her and the hook was on the handle. I will never park to make out as long as I live. I hope other kids do the same thing, Jeanette. Okay, okay here's what I think. Here's what I think the or, the real origin of this urban legend is, is it is a anti-fucking... <laughs> oh, well, yeah. It's an ableist anti-fucking fable. Is very anti-fucking. Yes. I mean, a lot of horror is killing kids who are fucking or virgins. Like, you know what I mean? Like, Or it's a send-up of that. Yeah. Where it's this... Where, especially in America, we're such a Puritan culture where yes. it's this, oh, the, the slut dies first. Yes. Now, another really horrifying scene in the movie is also an urban legend, and that is the uh, urban legend of the mutilated boy. Do you know this one? Now, that's one of the scariest scenes in the movie. That is based on an urban legend. Oh, my God. So the urban legend, and obviously there's various uh, situations 
that this happens, but the one on Snopes is that a mother is out shopping with her boy who is 10 years old. He goes off to a public restroom. He doesn't come back. The police go in and they find him in a pool of his own blood. His um, He had been castrated <gasps> by um, other boys. Now, it depends who, what the boys are. And sometimes they're a gang. It's a gang member initiation. I've never heard this. Yeah. So uh, obviously this legend is... This is an urban legend that goes way back. There's anti-Semitic roots. Like people, I think, used to tell the story where Jews were trying to get some Christian penis <laughs> for like some fucking ritualistic devil ceremony. Uh, it's a cla- like, it's, it's literally it's a, like... It's a classic trope. It's, it's a, a classic, classic trope. So it's like sometimes they're in a Kmart. Sometimes I mean, there's like all versions. Sometimes like it's a hippie. Like it depends when it was. that. Right. This, so it's like, yeah, this fear that someone's going to cut your son's dick off, I guess, bad elements right. in the Who, world. Whoever is the uh, boogie, the American or the whoever, wherever it's taking place. Yes. Because it's obviously... If it's it's has, slandering a group of uh, a group of people, a group of people, absolutely. Right, right. So yeah, I I don't think I knew that one as well. I mean, I've heard that being in horror movies before, and like it's obviously frightening and scary. But yeah, it's actually a thing that's been around forever. One that I always found terrifying as a kid was the dog licking under the bed. Okay, that sounds really familiar. Okay, so <laughs> but I'm scared. <laughs> I'm just gonna pair. I don't know exactly. Like I'm just gonna paraphrase like the gist of it. It's like these two girls, or it's like this girl, and she has a pet dog, and she's like on her bed, and every night she puts her, and the dog sleeps under the bed, and every night she puts her hand underneath the bed so her dog can like lick her on the hand and kiss her good night. Okay, I'm creeped. <laughs> <laughs> and one night she does it and she gets a lick and then she hears a voice and the voice is like, people can lick too. Oh! <laughs> or maybe it's not even a voice. Sometimes it's like she sees a message the next morning, like written on the wall that says people, right. people lick too. Urban legends love messages written on the wall or, or the bathroom mirror with oh. lipstick or something. Oh my God. <laughs> That's creepy. Isn't that scary? Yes. Um, so Yeah. Now, the the release of the movie coincides with another act of violence at Cabrini Green that actually leads to a real shit show of policy changes. So Candyman opens October 16th, 1992. Three days prior to the release, a seven-year-old boy named Dontrell Davis is shot to death by local gang members at Cabrini Green while walking to school. This incident makes national headlines and obviously uh, shakes the community to its core. This is a young boy just walking to school. Um, now, hist- a historian named Ben Austin says the combination of those two events exasperate a lot of anxious views that public offician- officials have about inner city uh, dwelling um, it's already sort of in the air, and this just kind of gives them... I mean, this is a time you have to remember there is a drug war focused on crack that's very uh, racist. Yes. Uh, this is around the time of the Central Park uh, five. F- five who are wrongfully accused. So people are really... Certain elements in politics are upping this racial tension and making people fear you know, black people, basically, and using that for political uh, gain. So... This mythology obviously 
that they're inventing affects people in real ways and affects and shapes public policy. Um, And this will lead to a lot of isolation, demolition, demolition of these people's homes, as well as mass incarceration. So the mayor in 1999 is Richard M. Daley, very famous Chicago uh, family. They kick off a $1.6 billion plan for transformation that will rip down public housing across the city and rehabilitate rehabilitate 25,000 new public units. But they basically turn over this land to uh, greedy developers. Now, this was supposed to create environments that were more mixed income. Uh, He claimed that he wanted to rebuild people's souls, like a classic gross politician line. So residents are forced out of these homes and these support systems that even if they didn't like everything there, it was their community and their home. They were uprooted. Yeah, they're uprooted in the hopes that they're supposedly going to get these uh, better opportunities and homes. I don't need to tell you that this goes to absolute fucking shit. Now, (laughs) so... Basically, the area where this all happened is completely gentrified now. Um, they did they left the row houses of these places, but tore down a lot of the um, high rises. Um, they created all of these uh, new developments for affordable housing. But basically, they have fifteen thousand units. The wait list is two hundred and fifteen thousand families trying to get into these places. So they push these people not into better uh, areas. They push them into even worse and uh, poorer areas because they had nowhere to go once these uh, these residents were fucking ripped down. So this turned into an absolute disaster. Um, People were basically saying that even when they try to move in these areas, because it's like it's a mixture, it's mixed income now. The people who are like higher income don't want the riffraff around, so it it turned into like a really uncomfortable place for these lower income people to be, even if they did get a spot right. uh, in these areas. So yeah, just an absolute uh, mess. In twenty twenty one, we get I guess it's kind of a sequel to Candyman. Um, there are some other movies, Candyman movies in the 90s, I think. Is there like Candyman 2? Yes. I thought the Candyman 2021 was a remake. No. Oh. It's not a remake. Okay. I thought that too, uh, but I, can't, I don't want to give things away. Okay. It's, it's not because the events of the first Candyman are known and happened oh. in this movie. Okay. So... I don't know what it is. I thought it was also a remake, but it, because of that element, I'm going to say it's a sequel. Oh, okay. <laughs> um, so Jordan Peele uh, produced it, and filmmaker Nia DaCosta is the director of this movie. And her take, her like new take now is taking what happened, what I just mentioned, where these areas got gentrified, uh, basically. So she's sort of... Um, her take is that she wants to preserve the scariness of the original film and really separate the monster from the community. Some people do complain or there the complaints would be maybe that it seemed like it villainized the community as well in that movie. Or, or some people say that she says the original film definitely fed into a fear of a black community and the black man in particular. She doesn't want to take that approach. She said, Oh God, this terrible place where terrible things are happening because these brutes are living here. This is a community that was chronically underserved for a very long time. So she had she adds elements um, of some of the gentrification in this area. Like I said, the row houses still exist, so they are still in the new movie. But it's like 
you know, the the lead guy in the new Candyman is an artist. Mm-hmm. So he's living in uh, these buildings that are like loft condos, really nice. Oh. Uh, there's several jokes about gentrification and he's he's like, you know, living it living in this gentrified neighborhood as well. He's an artist. So there's like these art galleries and people crack jokes like, yeah, you're one of the gentrifiers now or whatever. Like that's sort of definitely hit, hit, hit on in the movie, but not really what the movie is about. So she hopes, uh, you know, she wants to bring that to people's uh, attention though, that there are these impacts of displacement and gentrification that she hits on in this movie. But it's also a horror film. I saw it twice actually, and I I liked it better the second time for some reason. I think because I had just watched the first one, it helped me appreciate some of the things I had forgotten about in the second one. Yeah. Because like I said, it does call back to the first one a lot, and I just didn't have a memory because I, I hadn't seen it in so long. Um, so yeah, that's Candyman. Damn, <laughs> a lot Des? of information. A lot of information. That was a lot of information. That was such a great episode. Oh, good. Um, I really hope. I know our listeners will like it. Yeah, because it was uh, really illuminating. It's like um, a real movie versus reality. It was a real movie versus reality. <laughs> All the other ones we've done are shit. <laughs> this well, I feel like we don't always go into so much the movie versions because there are not a lot usually yeah. to go into. But I wasn't sure if the murder was enough, so I wanted to add some other elements. No, I think it's uh, you did such a great job. Thank you. We're going to record our after show now, which is up on our Patreon feed, patreon.com slash Hollywood Crime Scene. We will be posting some pictures yeah. for this episode on our Instagram page, and we will see you all on Friday. Bye. Bye.